Oregon, and thanks again for joining us for this fifth and final event in our annual named lecture series on the theme Imagining Futures. I'm delighted now to properly introduce our guest today, Dr. Charles Chavis Jr., Assistant Professor of Conflict Resolution and History and the founding director of the John Mitchell Jr. Program for History, Justice, and Race at the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. Dr. Chavis joins us today as this year's SEDEC. SEDEC professorship was established by a generous gift from two of the OHC's Portland supporters. The title of the lectureship refers to the Hebrew word for righteousness or justice. Professorship was inspired by the ethics after the Holocaust conference held at the U of O in 1996, and by the life and work of the Lithuanian French philosopher, religious thinker, and Nazi prisoner of war, Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas made personal ethical responsibility to others the primary focus of his philosophy. Together, the inspiration for the SEDEC professorship and our theme of imagining futures help explain our choice of Charles Chavis Jr as this year's SEDEC professor. In all his work, he seeks to advance social and racial justice and to bring us closer to the just future we all imagine and hope for. Dr. Chavis's work focuses on the history of racial violence and civil rights activism in the American South. He explores how historical understandings of racial violence and civil rights activism can inform current and future approaches to peace building and conflict resolution throughout the world. Dr. Chavis is the co-editor with Sixty Vinny Nimaraba of the volume For the Sake of Peace, Africana Perspectives on Racism, Justice, and Peace in America. Dr. Chavis's monograph, The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matthew Williams and the Politics of Racism in the Free State, was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in January 2022. Welcome, Dr. Chavis. We're delighted and grateful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's an honor to be here virtually with you all. Our conversation today takes place in the shadow of yet another act of anti-Black racial violence, terror, and murder. Only days ago in Buffalo, New York, a white gunman killed 10 innocent Black people. As this act of anti-Black mass murder makes clear racial terror in the U.S., crucial to your mission as a scholar and activist is the conviction that recovering the hidden history of racial terror in the U.S., is critical to achieving restorative justice in the present. Explain that reasoning to us. Well, thank you again, Paul, um, for your question. Um, and as I reflect on this weekend, um, being connected to this work, it reminds me of the experience um, that we all too often have come to actually recognize as something that is consistent. Um, this ongoing pattern of anti-black violence that you know my research highlights and focuses on that um, members in black community see is directly connected to the anti-lynching excuse me the lynchings of old directly connected to what we're seeing witness in the modern sense right and i think um, one of the things about the work that i'm doing and what, what's so essential is um, the power that I see in humanities and in history in helping shape um, and provide insight into the connections that are not so easily displayed, right? And um, as a student of history, um, when you see these acts of racial violence, it's oftentimes, um, in the modern sense, oftentimes it's easy for us to um, say that these don't represent the nature of our institutions or the nature of our democracy. However, in doing so, without making those connections and without having the tools necessary, um, we overlook right what um, it is we're fighting against. And we're fighting against um, white supremacy. Um, this same white supremacy that manifests itself in Buffalo is the same white supremacy that we fought a war over. Um, and if we're unable to see those connections, then we um, can only, um, we have to begin to realize that um, until we address the system, the systemic issues, um, that there will be no solutions. And we have to begin to 
grapple with that. But I mean, I feel a sense of numbness. Um, and, you know, I've been asked, um, as a number of my colleagues have been asked across the country to provide a comment or to reflect on what we've witnessed. But there's a frustration and anger um, that uh, is within um, the spirit of a lot of people in the space that I navigate and I um, work in um, because we hope that lessons will be learned from this history. Um, and that is really the goal at the end of the day of this work. I never thought uh, when, I, when I developed the film and I wrote this book, I recognize the work um, that's continuing to be done, making those connections around confronting the legacy of racial terror lynching, um, directly connecting it to anti-black violence that we see today. But we would never um, expect the, to continue to see these bold, blatant anti-black acts of white supremacist terror that continue to rise and to, um, you know, just fuel hatred. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I'm hopeful for the work of narrative change, which I think is very foundational to how we think about remedying um, and fighting against this, um, these onslaughts, these systemic attacks, but also the um, onslaughts that we continue to see. I think our main fight, hope um, in the battle is going to be the work of narrative change, radical narrative change. We have to begin early to educate youth and others about the true history of our nation and begin to work towards righting the wrongs and the errors um, in regards to both ideology and practice that some of our family members may have been involved in in regards to those who are in the white community. So that's my long answer. I apologize, but hopefully that is um, gets to it a little bit. But thank you for that, Paul. Oh, thank you. So let's talk about your efforts to recover that true history that you've mentioned. So the film that we just watched, Hidden in Full View, Out of the Archive, Racist Plans Are Laid Bare, introduces the long forgotten case of the lynching of Matthew Williams, which took place in December of 1931 in the town of Salisbury, Maryland. Who was Matthew Williams? And why was it important to recover his silenced story? Well, Matthew Williams was a 23 year old laborer, cousin, brother, um, someone who had friends in both the black and white community, but um, externally he represented one of hundreds of black laborers who that were assaulted um, and attacked during the Great Depression, specifically um, during this um, uh, era uh, where you had an attack on black wealth, black laborers that um, we saw consistently take place throughout the U.S. But most, more specifically, a lot of the focus, the hyperemphasis has been placed on the Deep South. Um, and as I begin to salvage the story of Matthew Williams, his identity and his community, I really I recognized um, that he, again, was one of a number of individuals that were targeted um, by systems and structures um, and institutions um, to stifle black success um, and black excellence in the midst of a national economic um, crisis. Um, and so um, his humanity was again essential. And one of the things about um, the power of the black, black resilience, the foundations of that resilience are rooted in many ways in the community. And so if we were to understand who Matthew Williams um, is and who he was, then we have to be able to understand his community. And so that is what um, brought me to continue my research and to dive deep, to discover his community, discover more about the historic community that he healed from and he took pride in. And that community was the black neighborhood of Georgetown, Maryland, um, in Salisbury, uh, Maryland. And as I began to unravel and to document the story of his community, uh, it became quite clear as to the motivations regarding um, his lynching and what his lynching represented as a tool um, and a mechanism to stoke fear and racial terror 
on the entire eastern shore community. So the book, uh, which the film gives a sense of um, The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matthew Williams and the Politics of Racism in the Free State, not only recovers the story of Matthew Williams, his lynching and the conspiracy of silence about its perpetrators and enablers, but also recounts your efforts of historical recovery. What are some of the challenges you faced in trying to recover that story? We, we talk a lot in my area of the field about archival silences. Um, and in many ways, I'm you know, blessed to be able to have such access to such materials. Um, as we know when examining, as most scholars know, most historians know, when doing research on racial terror lynchings, we, there's a hyperemphasis placed on newspaper accounts as being the only um, tangible source that um, we can um, glean from to be able to reconstruct the narratives of not only the incidents, but also the narratives um, concerning the humanity of the individuals or victims associated with these crimes. Um, and in my work, I um, decided that I would not take no for it. I would not take that for the final, um, you know, answer or final say. I said that I'll do everything I can to salvage the humanity um, and reconstruct a narrative that speaks to the humanity of the victims that are oftentimes relegated to brief um, sentences or footnotes in newspaper newspaper accounts, for the most part white newspaper accounts. And so I leaned heavily on the um, research um, that's documented, excuse me, the sources documented in the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper. And those that newspaper, I'm thankful um, for this newspaper because it's actually still in existence the um, oldest family-owned and operated african-american um, newspaper in the country the baltimore afro-american is still in circulation to this day and they were on the scene um, following the lynching of matthew williams reporting documenting um, what happened to matthew williams his family his community and with that um, information and evidence, I was able to identify and locate materials um, within the state archives that um, should have been where most materials are located. Specifically, the Afro-American newspaper referenced investigation materials and or reports from state officials. And so as a historian, I went to the state archives to try and identify those records um, and um, I was extremely astonished to find in the first attempt empty boxes with newspapers um, that had nothing to do with the cases. In fact, the boxes that I was able to locate um, were full of newspapers. They were specific to the years in which the um, lynchings took place, both the lynching of Matthew Williams in 1930. One and the lynching of George Armour in 1933. And so the reports that were referenced within the Baltimore Afro-American, um, during those years, those boxes were empty. And this caused me to um, continue to hunt and to fight. And after um, taking a break from teaching, um, I was an adjunct faculty member at a um, community college just outside of the um, state capitol. And I would during my breaks, I would go back and finally, I discovered a 900-page PDF document that um, detailed unprocessed materials. Um, and in combing through that document, I identified a record group of unprocessed materials. Um, and I requested those materials. After about three days, I received them from an off-site location. And... Um, the, as I detail in the book, the discovery was astonishing and I identified and located um, over a hundred um, witness statements, eyewitness statements, as well as photographs and other materials that um, document contemporaneous investigation um, and statements from those who witnessed this lynching, as well as those who participated and who were culpable, complicit, um, and involved directly. Um, and really it all amounted to a, a state cover-up um, um, of this lynching and this crime against not only Matthew Williams, but his entire community. 
Explain a little bit about this state cover-up. On the one hand, why there are these records and why they were covered up. Sure, sure. So uh, detail some of this in the book. The, 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 the area where I talk about the politics of racism, it speaks to this specifically. Um, and so the investigation um, coincided with, the lynching coincided with a unique political moment in our nation's history where um, Her Herbert Hoover was benefiting from the support of um, black people in our nation. Um, and that support regarding the Republican Party was waning. Albert Ritchie, the governor of Maryland, who was able to somehow um, emerge as a political figure or juggernaut in many ways in this unicorn of a state as known as Maryland, um, being able to secure the black vote um, in midst of um, being connected to the racist Democratic Party um, with ties to Mississippi and other areas. He found a way to secure the black um, vote and support um, in a way that in some arguably he thought would appeal to national leaders and push the Democratic Party um, out of this backward racist mindset that was again saw that was replicated and um, evidenced in the Deep South. And he saw this lynching as a way to secure and court the black vote. Um, so his full-throated response is what we saw post-lynching, um, literally. Um, and he was in Chicago doing a campaign as he was campaigning for um, the presidency. Um, and he laid out a full-throated response that he was going to thoroughly investigate this lynching, which seems like, you know, common sense, you have a racial terror. But it was very, and just that alone, this was extremely a radical statement, especially when you have people like Theodore Bilbo in Mississippi who is literally calling for lynchings in his party, right? This individual is um, emerging as a figure who's saying, I'm going to use my executive authority to investigate, right, these lynchings. I'm not going, this lynching, I'm not going to throw it on Congress. He was a, um, extremely opposed to any type of legislative effort to stamp out um, racial terror lynching. He said that it was strong executive power and authority that had to be used. And the case of Matthew Williams in this lynching was a perfect example, um, a proof, um, of, if you will, for Ritchie to be able to show that he could control the, the, um, the lesser um, forces, the evil forces within the Democratic Party and the backwards nature of um, our country. And so he used that lynching, he used the lynching to do this. He initiated an investigation um, and early on he recognized that um, as most scholars now know, lynchings are state sanctioned in that most of the officials who oftentimes when we look at investigating these cases and why I say it amounted to a cover-up, most of the officials in which he signed their paychecks or approved or appointed were all individuals who were culpable and or complicit or directly involved in this lynching. And upon recognizing that, Ritchie decided to launch a parallel investigation, hiring a Pinkerton detective agent um, and the Pinkerton detective agency to infiltrate the mob and to identify and come up with names of individuals, state officials, um, local law enforcement officers and others who were involved. This is the part of the investigation that um, my book reveals and that is covered up. And um, after um, the materials, after this um, three month report was provided to Richie, he closes the book and these records never uh, show up. Um, and I discover them 90 years later. Tell us about some of the impacts and after effects of the lynching in Salisbury's black community. Sure. And so when we think about um, this period, we think about black business districts or communities in terms of um, the U.S. history 
Tulsa comes to mind as one of those communities when we talk about Georgetown. And again, it's important to understand that the community that Matthew Williams was a part of was a part of, represented one of hundreds of communities that suffered in the same way um, during um, this part of our nation's history. And so um, the Georgetown community was directly impacted by the lynching of Matthew Williams and the impact in many ways, my book reveals a, and lays out the lynching as being the um, match that lit the fire for the systemic violence and displacement that would take place beginning in 1931 up until the early 2000s, which is clearly articulated in the research work and um, practice of Professor Sherilyn Eiffel of NAACP um, Children's Defense Fund, who was representing clients and the descendants of Georgetown community where Matthew Weems was from in the early 2000s. In federal court cases, it was documented that there was a pattern of displacement and racial violence dating back to this era by federal judges, right? And so, um, you know, this community has been impacted um, and is continuing to be impacted. Um, beginning in 1931, there were around, in 1931, there were around 19 black businesses um, and uh, their properties owned by members of the black community. There was a, um, a black bank. There was also um, two black hotels, two of which were on the Green Book. Um, and there were black educators. And um, to this day of the 19 buildings and um, properties, there's only one building that remains. Even the black bodies in the black cemetery were exhumed under the guise of highway advancement. Um, and that's the Charles Chipman Cultural Center. Ironically, this is also the church in which Matthew Williams attended. Um, and this, as I mentioned, this community to this day is still impacted. There is a rising homeless crisis um, on the Lower Eastern Shore, as well as other disparities, including those represented in the criminal um, justice system. Um, and I'm working with local, uh, with descendants and local advocates to support um, repair um, and reparations and repair for this community. Tell us about the, those efforts to engage with the Salisbury community to encourage healing. Sure. So in, in March of this year, we um, fought through the last throes of the pandemic and we decided to um, begin the interview or history interview process where we, where, where we conducted or history interviews with the descendants of perpetrators and victims um, associated with the lynching. And so taking literally the history that I've uncovered in the book and tracking down families of the victims um, as well as those um, related to the descendants of perpetrators to sit down and begin to have a conversation about how we heal first by centering on the truth, right? And we did this with the support of clinical social workers um, who were on site, as well as expert journalists who joined us, um, and the mayor um, of Salisbury as well. And for a historian and someone who has spent about six years of my life doing this work, this moment for me was a very, um, when you think about writing a book, right, um, your research and what you're doing, the, the practical piece of this um, was indeed um, everything came full circle, if I can say that for me, in terms of why I do what I do as a historian. The value, I think, that we miss in the humanities oftentimes when we um, only see the work that we're doing as not connected to a larger um, vision and goal. And um, for me, uh, being able to model that uh, an experience where you had people on both sides of this racial terror come together and begin to sit down, listen, and to hear each other, um, not thinking about what they saw on Fox News or what they saw these past four years, 
but actually talking about their humanity, right? their shared humanity. By overlooking these opportunities and not recognizing the value of history, we lose the opportunity to understand the shared humanity of individuals. And that is when I began to really, um, I got a second win as my grandmother would say regarding this work because it has been very lonely and difficult to do work such as this. Um, you know, being as scrappy as I am around su getting support and in the humanities, you know, it's a small group of us. It's like a small pot of funds and we're all rushing to do this important work. But I, I indeed was um, just inspired by that moment um, and that experience. And we were able to hear from members in the white community specifically who, which I think is very important in this current phase that we're in the larger freedom struggle, for those in the white community to begin to say, you know, I can't get members of my family to be a part of these conversations, but I'm going to take it upon myself, right, to, I'm here, right, and I'm going to take what I've learned and the knowledge that I've learned and go back to those in my family to begin to do some of this work Right. I think that is essential and that's what's needed as we move in this um, next, the larger next phase of the larger freedom struggle within this country. And we have to begin that process. And I think um, it's something that we were able to model in March and we are going to continue to do as well. And what we're doing with those interviews, the mayor, working with the mayor, those interviews will um, provide um, and they'll be represented in the establishment of the Archive for Cultural and Racial Healing, which is the nation's first archive for cultural and racial healing that's proposed in the um, legislation that we proposed to um, Congress um, for the establishment of the Truth Commission. That'll be um, the oral histories as well as the documents and other materials that we've identified and discovered will be a part of this archive a repository of racial healing, an archive of accountability, which again, we hope will model and inform efforts that we hope to duplicate nationally. So at this point, let me invite our viewers, if they'd like to ask uh, uh, Dr. Chavis uh, any questions to type them into the chat and I can share them with him. Uh, Charles, you are mentioning Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the first of its kind in the US. How did the commission come about and why is its work so important? The commission came about um, through ground-based activism and efforts um, based in Maryland. Um, Maryland is um, unique in many ways around, specifically around the ways in which it's owned its um, state history, if that makes sense, right? I mean, the state archives of Maryland I've always been intrigued as I came to um, Maryland as a doctoral student by the ways in which the state archives in Maryland has, has had a handle in recognizing what they possess, right? The, the um, records, and I didn't, knowing what they possess, um, and being honest to say that we can't, we don't have the resources to handle it. Um, and for me, I was intrigued to see the uh, number one having a legacy of slavery project which was foundational to not only the work of this commission um, but it was also foundational to um, the work of other organizations nationally that sought to document and reconcile with the history of racial terror lynching so the state of maryland's legacy of slavery project um, was this developing the state archives by actually one of my dissertation committee um, committee members, Dr. David Terry, when he was um, in the Maryland State Archives, it was in a, a case study um, that sought out to, large case study project that sought to document the cases of racial terror lynching in the state of Maryland, which um, formed the foundation for the numbers that we have today for this case. And Brian Stevenson's work um, began to trickle into Maryland um, um, about four years ago and it was the research that had been going on in the state archives as well as in the local coalitions around Freddie Gray and anti-black violence and other things that we were witnessing um, regarding policing in Baltimore and throughout Maryland 
that collided with the work of Stevenson and his historical work that uh, produced a opportunity, a moment to where we push, we thought it was an opportunity to push for and advocate for the establishment of this commission. And again, seeing Maryland as a place, Barbara Jean Fields, a notable historian, calls Maryland the middle ground, right? Um, and seeing Maryland as this unique space, we uh, were honored to give it a try and to push forward and again, setting the standard and a model of sorts. And we've learned along, learned from our mistakes along the way, being a model and being the first, but we're indeed honored to have established this commission. And what was, I think, very powerful and something that um, is important to recognize is that this commission was established, um, it was a bipartisan commission, voted on unanimously and bipartisan, and signed by a Republican governor. So again, in the midst of what we're seeing uh, I, on Fox News and um, in other areas of our country regarding how politically volatile our situations are, in some areas, in some spaces, those who are on different sides of the spectrum are able to come together um, and um, focus on and work towards justice um, in our shared humanity. And so I'm hopeful for that. And I think we're learning um, how to duplicate um, the efforts and the strategies and the tools that we've developed to develop a national model that we think um, will work for our country. So uh, I got a question um, from the audience uh, asking you to tell us that you had and perhaps that the commission has had with the descendants of perpetrators about the participation of their ancestors and their participation in the healing conversations. Sure. Um, and so we've had different um, ranges of experiences brought forth um, regarding um, those involved in the lynching. But there's one specific case that I'll briefly share um, where we have an individual whose father not only participated in the lynching, but also whose wealth in many ways was amassed by the systemic displacement of the Georgetown community. And um, this interview that took place shed light into the narrative violence that um, has allowed that allows the silences that we see to exist right and so in that interview and with respect to the individual and the content i'm not going to go go through that but i think within that what we were able to identify and discover is the lies that are told not only when we think about curriculum and within our um, institutions but the families as well not only the lies, but the ways in which we um, recreate um, our loved ones as heroes um, rather than villains, um, or rather than those who are complicit, and really rather than those who are truthful, who are, you know, just individuals who are a part of a larger system, right? Who are, unfortunately, some people would say people of their time. You know, it's one of the things that's really interesting with this case is that it's with lynchings, you know, that they're so well documented, um, but you still have this, the silence that um, in many it's, it's the lies that persist in spite of the overwhelming evidence of people being there and being visible and in a community such as Salisbury, it became very clear as I began to engage with the descendants of those family members involved that there was no way that um, individuals could not have known. And so that is when we began to dig into those stories and during the interview process, it became very clear that there were alternative stories told. Some consistent with what we um, know as scholars and as historians, um, oftentimes we hear of, and this came up in my case, in Matthew Williams, the tropes and the, um, such as lynchings, um, the old threadbare lie is what Ida B. Wells calls, where the um, black 
male um, is attacking white female purity. And that is the reason and justification. We had that as one of the justifications from one of the descendants of interviews whose, um, whose descendant was a leading official um, in the town who um, provided the rope for Matthew Williams. That was the justification given by descendants. He was protecting the white community, right? He was protecting our great-grandmother from a black brute who was on the loose. That's the story that they've heard being passed down, right? And so those are the type of stories that we, we, um, we are hearing. But again, it's important to understand that we're dealing with the silence and also lies that are told within not only our institutions, but also within the individual homes. And this is where I think the responsibilities of white people and their families, descendants specifically in these areas, it's important to be able to um, navigate how to disrupt those silences and how to grapple with them. Um, and the institutional silence is a whole nother situation. And that's something I'm working uh, but the evidence, again, makes it so much easier because you're not dealing with um, anecdotal information. We have tangible documentation that corroborates. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be necessary, but the oral history interviews, the stories that we have told from black descendants, the victims, everything that they've said is documented and backed up by the documented evidence that has been suppressed and hidden. So for institutions, this work uh, makes it almost um, um, crazy for them not to be able to embrace any sort of repair when you're able to see the level of documentation and evidence. And that is why I'm thankful nonetheless of the mayor, um, Jake Day, who is committed to repairing the wrongs of the past um, targeted um, at this community. Um, so that's my long answer. And I got some long, I have a, I'm a um, long-winded kind of guy. That's the divinity school in me. <laughs> so, Charles, the next question is from Sharon Gary Smith, who's the president of the NAACP in Portland. Uh, 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 president Gary Smith says, first, first, a warm thank you to you, Dr. Chavis, for your intentional research and scholarship rooted in uh, the discerning the truth of the use of lynchings and displacement of African-Americans through anti-Black racist violence. The questions go back to uh, what um, uh, she thought I uh, heard you say uh, you were going to speak about. How do you handle the fatigue, the anger, the trauma of another and another and another discovery earlier and currently? How do you stay human and humane in the face of intentional white nationalist views uh, that uh, have acted so frequently with impunity when you're doing your research? How do you, how do you keep, keep your humanity? So for me, centering and, and specifically talking, speaking from the black experience, I think it's so important for us um, as black people in this work to recognize the value in um, making sure that our well-being is centered. Part of what we're dispelling and fighting against is this John Henryism, where we're told to suffer in silence and we're told that our experiences and our feelings or emotions um, cannot factor into our research or our practice, right? All of this work. And for me, um, centering my well being and also in the process and the work and centering the well being is essential as well. But the biggest thing for me in this moment is um, recognizing when enough is enough regarding um, the carrying that a lot of black leaders and educators have done specifically regarding um, members of the white community. And I'm gonna be kind of frank here, um, but far too long, um, Black people have done the work that white people should have been doing and should be taking to their families and to deal with the, our nation's original um, sin and these issues. 
Um, and the days for that are past. And if we are to heal as a country, then um, members of the white community who um, have to begin to take ownership and be a part of what the healing process, and they cannot wait on um, black leaders such as ourselves to lead and guide them or to educate them, right? And that is the big, because that is really the frustration piece. Um, you know, hopefully that makes sense. And I'd love to engage a question more, but I mean, that is really where I'm at in terms of the space that I'm in. And because it is, it, it's so many levels of trauma, right? It's one thing to study something, but you're living it as well, institutionally. Um, and so it's a, so many different layers, but I think recognizing and having a system in place, right? And that's the, the, the biggest piece of this. What systems are in place that will allow for, right, um, whites to emerge in this um, way and to carry this um, work, right? And I think some of the things that we've seen modeled in the state of Maryland, um, thankful for the work that we saw in Allegheny County, Maryland, where white caucusing was brought in to this community where a lynching took place in Cumberland, Maryland, where you literally had issues, excuse me, my son's coming home from school. Um, you had issues um, where you had uh, members of um, white community, um, they had, when issues arose within the white community, you had your white caucus that dealt with members of their community around issues and questions pertaining to educating um, white people concerning right what was going on. And so people in the black community who are living this, descendants and others, didn't feel um, re-traumatized by having to tell their story over and over again, right? Um, in the hopes that they are believed um, and or in the hopes that um, they'll secure support or buy-in, right? So these are all the things that, but I think having, we have to as a nation begin to develop a model, right? It's one thing to say, okay, white people, y'all have to take it and figure this out. It's not our problem. But what systems are in place that we have that can be duplicated and replicated that makes sense? And I'm really in favor of this social worker-based approach um, that um, where this white caucusing model is very beneficial. Um, and so I would lift that up as an example of one of the ways in which we can begin to do some of this work and alleviate that burden because we're going to be, when we see these incidents happen um, in the unrelenting aspect, we have to prioritize self-care and well-being and make sure that mental health is centered in this work and we validate and recognize the realities of the trauma because that's another piece of this as well. One of the reasons why we brought in social workers is because all of the work that we've seen, this trauma tourism that has become popular not only domestically but globally is equally as problematic and so unfortunately the institutions continue to develop this model but as I do the work that I'm doing having social workers there to be a part of not only the interview process but also to support and provide remedies and resources is essential as well and if we're doing that for the descendants that we're in the communities that we're working with, what are we doing for ourselves as black people in these spaces and or as organizations, humanities-based organizations that seek to do this work? How are we centering well-being in the work as well, right? Um, and psychosocial support as well. So there's another long one for you, but thank you so much, President. I really appreciate your question. So the next question is from Eliza Canty-Jones, who um, grew up near Salisbury and is grateful to learn about the community movement and community involvement in the work that you're doing. Um, Eliza is wanting to know um, if there's any involvement or partnership with schools and students in the area in these efforts. Are students today getting the sort of history education that Eliza definitely did not? So that is an amazing question. And I am literally in between um, battling the flu and dealing the closing out my semester, I've been trying to and working to secure support for uh, curriculum development, which will utilize the resources and work that we're doing and we've done 
to provide um, support to develop curriculum in Salisbury in Wacomico County, as, which will serve as a model for what we want to do across the state. Um, remember, the case of Matthew Williams is one of over 44 at least lynchings in the state that we've been tasked as a commission to investigate. And the goal is to, one of the remedies that we're presenting and proposing, um, we can say that we're proposing now, is a broad curriculum change, a narrative change that will go throughout the K-12 education system that will confront and deal with the gaps and the lies being told within our state's history. Um, and so that is integral knowledge to the work that we're going to do and we're continuing to do the state commission but in Salisbury that's going to be a primary focus as well and the mayor um, as um, I haven't noted this but the as a result of the work that we've done in Salisbury um, the mayor has established a truth commission um, uh, of individual um, organizations and institutions that represents the institutions and uh, organizations that hold a sense of um, responsibility for righting these wrongs and amongst those organizations is um, represented from the school board and other educational organizations. Um, we are benefiting from as well the collaboration and support um, of um, Amber Green, who is a local civil rights activist, a youth activist, um, who is a homeless youth advocate on the Lower Eastern Shore, who has been working very closely with us to make sure that we're making those connections um, that need to be made. Um, and so. Um, we're moving full speed ahead, but the first phase of this work is to establish the Chipman Arch, which is the Archive for Racial and Cultural Healing, and that in that arch we'll be documenting the stories of the descendants of Georgetown, the descendants of Matthew Williams, his story. We'll be developing a digital map that documents the um, wealth and the um, materials and the culture of this community. And we'll literally be tracking the strategies, tools um, of displacement um, throughout from the 1931 all the way to um, the 2000s, as I mentioned. And this will be um, presented in an exhibit that will be released um, at the 91st anniversary of the lynching of Matthew Williams. But we've started that work, um, and we're partnering with the Association of Research Libraries, um, as well as the Association of African and African American Museums. So another act of your efforts to uh, share this research and to spread this word and to raise consciousness is uh, the film that we saw at the beginning of, of our time uh, hidden in plain view. The film is intended to be the first in a series. Tell us about that series. Sure. The series is um, true to its name, Hidden in Full View, seeks to highlight the stories of communities that have suffered far too long in silence against the onslaught of systemic um, racial violence, um, but have somehow been able to survive and rise um, from the ashes. And our goal is to salvage the humanity and the stories of these communities and begin to tell their stories. And so, um, We'll start with, and we have started with Maryland and the Georgetown community. And I'm thankful to um, announce here that because of the uh, support of the uh, Rosenzweig Center for New Media at George Mason University, um, the Hidden Full View series will be um, the first installment will come out in the fall. Um, and it'll be a podcast series that we've been, that will be, that's been developed um, centering on the story of Salisbury next year We'll be moving towards another community um, in our nation, um, and there'll be a subsequent um, documentary series as well. And this film, this short, serves as the first um, episode of the installment that will be coming out next year also. So Charles, we're coming to the end of our time. This will be the last question. Uh, today's event is the final one in the Oregon Humanities Center's Imagining Futures series. Can you give us a sense of the future that you are working for in your scholarship and your activism, the future that you uh, hope for your own? Well, um, a future where we're able to acknowledge our shared humanity 
right? It's something that I think we all have to continue to work towards. In all of the documentation and all of the stories that I've salvaged regarding individuals and communities that have suffered racial terror, I have always wanted people to see the humanity um, of the individual and begin the process through our work. I hope that people can begin the process of disrupting the blinders that society has placed on us that allow us and provide us with easy access to be able to erase individual the humanity of individuals, right? And I talk about this in the book, but it's important as well that I noted here. When instead of seeing the vic the, the alleged crime, we somehow um, that's all we see. We don't see the humanity, and we have to, as a people, as a nation, begin to deal with that and see the humanity of the individuals. Um, and from there, I think using history as a tool to do that is going to be integral in how we move forward as a nation. Well, thank you, Charles Chavis Jr. for that answer. It's the perfect response to close out our series of uh, this year, Imagining Futures with the Oregon Humanities Centers. Thank you so much for taking the time for this fascinating conversation and for all you're doing to advance racial justice. And thanks to our viewers for joining us today and for your questions. Although this is the last of the Oregon Humanities Center's Imagining Futures events for 2021 academic year, you can learn more about other upcoming events sponsored by the OHC and help support our programs, our public and research programs by visiting ohc.uoregon.edu. Uh, and please do consider buying uh, Charles Chavis Jr.'s amazing book, The Silent Shore. You can buy copies at J. Michael's Books in Eugene uh, and Backstory Books and Yarn in Portland or at your local independent bookstore. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Chavis, again uh, for joining.